Hey, welcome back everybody to the Noggin Notes podcast. Been a couple weeks and I missed everybody. I hope you missed me. It was uh, really tragic actually. My uh, my computer that I usually record on just took a dump uh, right in the middle of a recording a podcast actually. It was 45 minutes in with uh, with a guest and we lost it. Lost the whole thing. But I will have that guest back and uh, it's going to be awesome. But this guest is equally awesome, and her name is Alex Katahakis. She's a sexologist. We call him clinical sexologist or a sex therapist. Uh, she's awesome. We talk a lot about uh, sex, but mostly about relational connectivity and um, the various things that can interfere with that and then present in the form of sexual problems. So if you're not comfortable with the word sex, you're going to get comfortable because we say it about 7,000 times in this interview. <laughs> I know you're going to enjoy it. She's incredible. I can't wait to have her back uh, some point in the future. It was it was really, really educating for me and illuminating. I learned a ton. Uh, she's She's got a brain like a sponge, and um, I, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, uh, our company, mine and my business partner, Lindsay's in Reno, Nevada, and also a Sparks location. Check us out at ZephyrWellness.org. And we're also brought to you by Audible. Audible is an Amazon company, and what it is is audiobooks and all sorts of audio content. If you want, you can get a free trial for 30 days just by going to audibletrial.com slash notes, and you can sign up and preload your preferences they do a little quick survey about what you like, and then it populates with book titles that they think you'll enjoy. AudibleTrial.com slash Notes. It's got a totally unmatched selection and inventory. They're powered by Amazon, so Amazon can reach far and wide to bring you the best selections of all sorts of audio books, um, comedy, entertainment of all sorts, news. It's really quite good. I encourage you to check it out, support them, support us, get your brain fed, which is what this podcast aims to do. Thanks for joining us. I am going to present to you my interview with Alex Katahakis, PhD, MFT, and some other letters. Hope you enjoy it. Well, we're speaking this podcast episode with Alex Katahakis. Uh, how are you, Alex? How are you today, Jake? I'm. We were both chatting before we. I clicked the record button that, that we're both a little frenzied uh, and probably uh, out of gas, and our bandwidth isn't maximized. But uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, okay. It's always fun to talk to somebody else who's in the profession, but uh, does it somewhere else in the country? You're in, you're in Los Angeles. Uh, that's where you make your home there, and you have your practice there. Where are you originally from? I'm, I'm originally from Florida. Uh, the Central East Coast, where the rockets used to go off into space. So I guess some of them still do, actually. But uh, just that area right on the Central East Coast. That's awesome. So you grew up on the coast or like in Orlando or no, where? No, 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 on the coast, on the beach. I'm definitely oh. a beach, warm weather person. That's awesome. I've been to Orlando a few times, and I always wanted to go to the Space Center and check it out because I'm a nerd. Yeah. And I went. I was in Young Astronauts as a kid. And, oh, wow. Uh, we've just, we just never made it over there, and it's frustrating. But... So one of these days I will. Yeah. Now, now I, mean, e I think you would love it if you're a space nerd. Yeah, and, and I guess Elon Musk is launching rockets from L.A. now, right? Or somewhere thereabouts. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't think it would be in L.A. Probably not in downtown, no. That's, uh, I can't like, imagine. The, the center field of Dodger Stadium. Area. There are, there are 8 million 
so it's got to be somewhere in the outer reaches. Yeah, probably. I just saw it, it, it was several months ago. I was uh, sitting on the couch and we saw uh, Falcon 9 uh, returning and I was watching it with my then three-year-old and he was fascinated by it. And now he's just all into rockets. And I know that's totally what the audience tuned in for is to hear me talk about sure. Falcon 9 and Elon Musk. But anyway, you, uh, you're you an American family therapist, but you you also have some other credentials. Uh, you got your doctorate degree. What's, what's your doctorate in? Uh, my doctorate's in human sexuality. So that makes me uh, what they call a clinical sexologist. Um, and I choose to study and do a deep dive into human sexuality because um, I was originally interested in relational counseling. So I became a marriage family therapist instead of a clinical psychologist who typically study major mental illness. And um, it was, you know, through years and years of working with people and getting involved in a subspecialty of treating uh, compulsive sexual behaviors that led me to becoming certified as a sex therapist and a sex addiction therapist. And so I just decided to round things off by um, getting my doctorate in human sexuality. And that's my, that's where I work all day long. How, how long have you been practicing overall? Um, I think 2019, at least 20, if not 23-ish years. That's a long time. And you, what, what drew, uh, I guess, attracted you toward the, the sexuality aspect of things? Well, I was in graduate school, and I was sort of at sea there because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that from my own psychotherapeutic process, my life had changed dramatically. And not just my life, but more importantly, my inner state of being, that I was feeling more um, integrated, whole, happy and I thought wow if you can make a living talking to people what a cool way to make a living and so I trundled off into graduate school and um, it wasn't as uh, romantic as being on a therapist couch was Um, but it was intellectually stimulating and the class that really struck me the most was the human sexuality class and I started thinking you know what does make for a healthy sexuality and how do people maintain and sustain a sexually healthy relationship in long-term committed relationships? That's been my overarching question. Um, and it's still, you know, part of my quest um, because I think we are shifting and changing so rapidly right now. And the way in which we have sex has been profoundly influenced by the internet and the speed of the internet. Um, that, that question is always going to be there. And we're all going to be answering it differently. So I think I see my role is as uh, being a place to open space for self-reflexivity, meaning asking good questions so people can think about it themselves and answer that question for themselves of what's really true for me? What do I like? What don't I like? What am I curious about? Um, if I do that, does it make me feel good or does it make me feel bad about myself? And so it is an interesting um, terrain to explore with people, and it's never boring, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'll bet. And, and you've just brushed a w- very broad stroke across human sexuality and, and some of the facets therein. I want to break this down a little bit and take it piece by piece, maybe from the um, from the, the concrete ground floor. So you, you work, or you founded, I guess, the Center for Healthy Sex, or... Are you partnering? Yes, I did. I, yeah. 
so Center for Healthy Sex is where you can find um, a lot of what Alex does. But if you if you just Google her name, she pops up all over the place. And um, she's written several books. And, and I want to touch on that. But I want you to start with defining healthy. Well, when I think about, quote, healthy sex, I think of sex that is um, free from coercion. Uh, let me just backtrack a little bit and say that the World Health Organization um, has written a pretty um, extensive uh, definition of what sexual health is, which is different from healthy sex. So if people want to Google World mm-hmm. Health Organization, they will find that description there. But I think, you know, as human beings, we naturally seek to form relationships. We are peer-bonding creatures and we do that in order to grow and learn and experience life and certainly to uh, procreate and raise young ones. Um, and so I've come to understand a person's sexuality is intimately tied into our human need to connect with others. Uh, very few people get great satisfaction out of masturbation solely. Now, that said, there are people that are asexual. Um, and there are people that are so extremely avoidant that they are terrified to be in relationship with other people. But in the middle of the bell curve, we have a human need to connect. And um, so I also recognize that there's a power and a lure of sex that can lead people into realms of sexuality that become a source of pain and confusion and self-consciousness, you name it, embarrassment, guilt, shame, secrecy, etc. And so when I think of healthy sex, I think about um, helping people either restore or forge a path towards growth and connection and vitality so that sex is fulfilling and it's soulful and it's additive to a sense of well-being and a place of celebration. Um, So I guess additive is probably the best word. I like that. I like that it's enhancing it's not something that's uh, boring or routine or, or done out of necessity. Uh, but I like, the, I like the, yeah, obligation, compulsion. Um, yeah. yeah, I like the additive part. Uh, and see if this resonates with you. It's something that I've said uh, to various couples over the years who are struggling with um, you know, s- setting it as a, uh, a priority in their life, right? So they come in and they're struggling to connect and we delve into the intimacy and vulnerability issues and then come to find out they have sex once a month because they're just busy and they got kids okay. and, you know, I, I get it. Okay. So, well, what's getting in the way? And I say life and we're always tired at the end of the day. I said, well, why don't you put it on the calendar? And they, and they look at me like I have a hole in my head. I said, well, right. well, okay. So, so I know it sounds weird. And I, and I say, do you put, you, you, uh, let's pretend they're baseball fans. You say, and we live, I live in Reno. Reno's about three and a half hours away from San Francisco, which is where the Giants play and they're my team. So, um, would you, would you put a, a baseball game on the calendar if you're going to a Giants game? Yes, of course you do. And you usually plan that, right? They take the whole family. I said, uh, put, does putting it on the calendar and making the drive over the hill, take any of the fun out of the game when you're at the game? And invariably the answer is no, they enjoy, they enjoy it's it immensely. Fun. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and so even if the drive is a chore and you don't like being in a car for three and a half hours each direction, the game itself is still fun. I said, put sex on your calendar. It's still going to be fun. And and then it almost like makes it makes it a priority in your life. And so I found that that's very useful. Um, but I also am acutely aware of flirting with the idea that it then becomes a task, right? 
So I don't, I don't, I haven't yet any uh, received any feedback that says, well, since we put sex on the calendar, it's become a chore. <laughs> but I don't know if your experience has, has been different with that. Yeah, it's funny because driving to the game is also a task. Mm-hmm. It's part of the, nobody loves that part, the traffic, the getting in and out of the park. Um, it's kind of a drudgery that goes with being in the park. And so people have this kind of romanticized idea and now pornographic idea of what sex is supposed to look like versus the reality of what our life is like. And our life is not like our neighbor's life or somebody on TV or somebody in a magazine's life. And I think that's where people get into trouble. They start looking outside of their own relationship and what's true for them and their family and their logistics. And so this idea of planning sex, I think, makes people's anxiety go up, especially around performance. Uh, if I'm not in the mood, or what if I can't get an erection? Uh-huh. And so my answer to that is, so what? You know, if you have, you know, found your kids out to your parents or your neighbors for a sleepover, and um, the two of you just feel like roadkill at the end of the week because it's been so stressful. You now have an opportunity to sit and face the one person who is your person, who is your co-regulator, the person that should be the one who makes you feel the best, that helps you calm down, that feels like you have, you know, they have your back. And so maybe the process is just sitting and talking to each other face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, not, you know, wandering around the house, and saying, you know, how are you? You know, you've been really crouchy this week or difficult. And that that level of stress is usually uh, a cover for vulnerability. Mm-hmm. For the person to say, you know, I'm struggling here. Or I had a really hard time with our son. Or I hate my job. Um, and to feel like they're seen and heard and vulnerable so that the other party's not threatened or judging or giving advice then we start to clear some of the debris out of the way where, you know, you can start to greet together and make eye contact together and maybe just hold each other. Maybe one person just cries. Um, So all of that stress has to get out of the way before people can really make a deep connection and move towards a connected sexuality. So that's a way it can go. Another way it can go is that people just want to burn off stress, so they're using sex... Um, as a way to, as an athletic event, just to burn through the stress. And maybe afterwards they talk. Um, so it depends, again, on the couple, their ages, what's going on in their life. There's just so many factors that surround this. I like that there's no one way. That, that makes me feel very comfortable. Um, is, yeah. it, is it fair to say that most or much of sexual complication arises from uh, I gotta be careful here that I don't make it binary. Um, stress and or a lack of intimacy, and not that one begets the other or that they stand alone. But are you? Do you find that the lack of intimacy, lack of connectivity, lack of vulnerability, uh, and or just external stress tends to be like where most sexual dysfunction or sexual, I guess, complication arises? I think yes. Because this matter of intimacy has to do with eyeball-to-eyeball contact. Can you look your partner in the eye um, in an open-hearted way and say, I love you, you matter to me, even though I've been itchy or grouchy or a jerk this week? Um, That's a sign of good connection between two people. But when people are in shame 
or they're so angry and they have resentment, they generally can't make eye contact with each other. And that eye contact, that close-in eye contact, is highly novel to the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system, for that matter. The brain and body get ignited and come alive with that kind of close-in eye contact. And when I say close-in, I mean sitting knee to knee, face to face with each other, and noticing the feelings that arise. Um, because we so desperately, all of us, want to be soothed and seen and taken care of. And when both parties are living in the world we live in right now, it's very demanding. You know, everybody talks about how great the economy is, but everyone's running around like I just want their head cut off. Right. Um, and so money becomes the currency, not intimacy, love, eroticism, um, present awareness, gratitude, contentment. Um, and so when we can connect back with someone, we connect to our own selves. And I think it's through that heartfelt connection with a partner um, that the erotic can arise from. And then it's not pornographic. And not that there's anything wrong with pornographic sex, that's a different style of sex. But if that's the only diet you're on, there's gonna, there will be problems down the road because desire falls off. And you always have to up the ante. Well, it sounds like it's just empty. It's hollow, and it lacks intentionality and purpose. If you're if you're just always doing it that way to you know, say the yeah, the acrobatic like exercise sex, maybe not acrobatic. That wasn't the right word. But like the the exercise sex to burn off the stress in order to get to the intimacy. If you're constantly in that routine, um, there's just no depth of connectivity. Is that fair? Right. That's. I think that's fair to say. Um, if that's the only way it's done, because at some point that person's not going to be novel enough. You're not going to be able to get off with that person. And so then, you know, there's partner replacement fantasy where you start thinking about somebody else mm. or porn that you've um, been watching or someone you're flirting with at the office. And um, it starts to come out of the relationship and go elsewhere. And then, you know, at some point, you just, you just kind of need that all the time to have sex with your partner. And then... Really, it's an issue of desire dropping off for the partner. We get on a treadmill. It sounds like you, you, uh, the 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 novelty. I love that you said the novelty. I think you said the novelty. Not yes. the novelty wears off, and and it's like a kid with a new toy. It's fun for a little bit, but then it, then it gets bored and moves on. And we can do that with our partners if we're constantly out of the present moment, right? If we can't tolerate the intimacy of the present moment because we're having to externalize with our fantasies then it's almost like a machination of, of the routine and, the, and we lose meaning behind it. Um, I'm wondering if it, when, when people seek you out, uh, they say clinical sexologist, uh, you got all this experience, what, what are their presenting issues? Well, gosh, I mean, it runs the gamut. Um, because I am the clinical director at Center for Healthy Sex, um, you know, people call typically Center for Healthy Sex, and they're calling because they have issues of, as I said, uh, they're sexually compulsive, um, or they have issues of desire or dysfunction going on, um, or, you know, for females, uh, there would be pelvic pain disorders and mix also. So it really runs the gamut of sex and sexuality. Um, also, people, predominantly women who've been, you know, sexually abused, um, typically, if men have been sexually abused, they um, if they don't come in for treatment, they're coming in because they're sexually compulsive and they don't know why. Uh. So 
it really, it, it just, you know, I would say we're sort of the psycho-spiritual supermarket for <laughs> sex and sexuality issues. I, I was trying to detect some themes, that's why, because I was going to ask about trauma, trauma histories and, um, you know, invalidation in the uh, family of origin and that kind of thing. I think we all think of it as obvious interferences to healthy not only healthy sex, but healthy relationships broadly, even in the occupation. You know. So um, I was trying to pick up on some some unique themes there. Uh, I like that you touched on if males are compulsory. Maybe they had an abusive past. What are some other themes that might not necessarily be so obvious? Um, well, people used to think that, you know, like all people that are sexually compulsive were sexually abused, and that's more often not the case than the case. I mean, what we see is a lot of emotional abuse um, and a lot of neglect. Um, so people that grow up with a parent who's mentally ill, who's had an untreated bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, or a very alcoholic family. In any of those cases, um, a child's going to grow up not being seen and not being heard, and as such, they're going to have extreme difficulty regulating themselves. So what that means is... You know, if we're upset or hurt or angry and we are relatively secure people and we have a good capacity for taking care of ourselves, we know that we can take a deep breath, call a best friend, reach out to a partner, call one of our parents even, and say, hey, I'm having a hard day. And that person's going to say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? Let's go for a walk or let me give you a hug. Um, or they're going to commiserate on the phone with you about, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's just horrible that your boss did that, and he's a jerk, and they're going to join with us and really support us. But when someone grows up in a family where there's this kind of abuse or neglect, they don't have the experience of other people tending to them, which also means they don't regulate their nervous systems. So when that child is chronically afraid, um, or they are feeling insecure, or they're being bullied at school, but the parent is infirmed in some ways and they don't notice it or care about it, then that child is going to look for another way to make itself feel okay, whether it's drugs, alcohol, masturbation, uh, chronically, not that there's anything wrong with masturbation, but when it's used for, it's not used for sexual pleasure and it's used to regulate anxiety, it becomes an adaptive strategy, and it becomes a compulsion. And these are habituated patterns in the brain and body. Um, and so these are the kind of things that we're looking at when people are struggling sexually. And I really, really wish we didn't think about sex as a separate issue from a human psyche, brain, body. Um, it's just the oddest thing to me that there are therapists that, quote, don't talk about sex. It's like, well, how what? do just disconnect the pelvic region from the rest of the humans. Is that really a thing? There are therapists that really, carve that out? It's all the time with marriage family therapists. People You're will do couples me. therapy and they say, well, you know, we went to couples therapy for several years and now we need to do sex therapy. And I think, well, how did you avoid talking about sex for two, three years in therapy? That's and baffling. I didn't know that was going on. But it's, it has to do with the squeamishness in our culture. Um, so anyway, that's just, sort of another soapbox. We can talk about yeah. that some more. But, no, I, um, no, I kind of want to because uh, uh, some, if we could just birdwalk this for a little bit because I've done some topics on this podcast where I just go solo and I basically do, you know, it's Jake Wiskirchen's rant hour. And uh, 
and it's and it's designed to. I mean, it's not just me, you know, soapboxing for my own sake to vent to, to vent into the ether. The intentionality behind it is that um, consumers of our service should know what appropriate counseling looks like, and yeah, that's true. and so I'm trying to to give them a peek behind the curtain, or or maybe just take down the whole curtain altogether because I I like that sometimes. Um, and this this blows my mind. So I've gone through school, and um, and the the recurring theme was get comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? So the the whatever the sensitive topics are, and I'm putting air quotes in that. You can't see it because it's audio, but um, that the, the quote unquote sensitive topics are sex, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, finances. You know, there's there's a handful of them that that right. s- broad society doesn't find to be polite speech, but we in our profession are literally paid to go there. Um, so I would like to have a conversation about when people enter into couples therapy, what to expect, because I just presume that we would eventually get to the bedroom at some point. How's, how's your sex life? How frequent is it? What is it enjoyable? And I'm comfortable having those questions, asking those questions. I teach my students, my interns that, but give me your perspective. Like how, how early on do you do it? And, uh, what should people expect if they're, if you get random people who aren't clinicians listening to this? Well, I think people, again, should consider if they're having uh, relational issues, whether they're a same-sex couple or opposite, or the same thing, or, yeah, opposite, <laughs> um, that they should ask themselves, you know, people come in and they say, oh, you know, our marriage is great, our relationship is great, we're best friends, we're just not having sex. So that tells me that the relationship is not, not so great. Not great, right. Right, they're not really talking about the elephant in the living room. Um, or, you know, if somebody says, well, we're arguing a lot, uh, but our sex life is great, I think the therapist needs to be very curious about why that is mm-hmm. and what's great about the sex. And what I would make up about that is that the sex is highly intense. There's a big discharge of energy. There's, like, great makeup sex. But the two are not necessarily connected during sex. And that's why they're also having uh, this agitation um, between the two of them, you know, during waking hours. So I think when people go to couples therapy, they should say to themselves, you know, this is going to be challenging. And it's not just that we need communication skills, but how are we talking during sex? Do we talk during sex? What about our sex life? And it's not that your sex life is problematic. The question is, how could it be better? How could we better communicators, better parents? Um, I don't think people should go to couples therapy just when they're in trouble. Yeah. I think it's useful to go to think about potential. How do we increase our potential? How can we be better at what we're doing? What are our blind spots? What aren't we seeing? Um, quick tangent on that. that. Yeah, yeah. Quick tangent on that. Um, do, you, do you guys take insurance at Central Healthy Sex? Uh, we don't. See, one of the, the rubs that we get is that uh, in our in mental health, it's like the only medical profession, you know, if we can loosely term it under that umbrella, where you have to be broken before you can get fixed. And there's no preventative care afforded by insurance companies. That's another soapbox I'm not going to dive into yeah. now. But um, you need a diagnosis in order to get reimbursed from the insurance company. So that's one of our struggles. You can't come in preventatively and say, you know, we could always tab somebody with an adjustment disorder and, you know, whatever. But um, that's interesting. Right. But I think, look, if somebody is having sexual marital issues um, and somebody's anxious. Yeah. Right. Right. Who isn't anxious today anyway? Um, so I think <laughs> it's easy to come in and say I'm anxious or I have a low-grade depression because 
you know, my relationship isn't as good as I think it could be. I want to, I want to shift gear. Yeah, I appreciate that. I want to shift gears because you, you said something very early on about, um, healthy sex in long-term relationships, uh, something to that effect. And my question is, from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of um, sexual disconnect, but overall intimacy uh, failing and vulnerability not being achieved because people are seeking excitement and exhilaration instead of overall long-lasting joy. And, And I'm Curious your perspective on how the two, you know, the long-term relationship, um, the intimacy, the act of sex itself, but then all other communication is impacted by media, uh, either traditional or social media, bombarding us with messaging of instant gratification and exhilaration and excitement versus sustaining happiness. Right. Well, I think, you know, First of all, we've got the media blasting us with sexual images, and now we have unfettered access to pornography at all times, no matter what your age is, and that all kids in this country are getting their sex education from porn. So by the time they're 20 years old, they know everything there is under the sun about sex. Um, It took people a lifetime to understand and know through experience. So there's that pressure on top of people um, and then there is the way the human brain and body are actually wired and connect. And they are diametrically opposed with each other in some ways. So I think what I like to think about is how do people cultivate their own sexuality over a lifetime? And this, you know, we see people doing really well with this and poorly with it when it comes to how do I take care of my physical body over a lifetime? Am I eating well? Do I exercise regularly? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I actually taking care of myself? Or am I just collapsing into the middle-aged weight gain and, oh, well, you know, I don't fit into my genes anymore? Um, People really um, very quickly give up on themselves instead of working towards optimal and potential, as I was talking about. And I think sex changes in the same way our bodies do, when they're intricately bound, over time. So nobody at 50 is going to have the sex life they had at 30. But does that mean you give up on sex? Or do you start to get curious about, well, what does turn me on right now? And what do I like? And what would be fun and arousing to me? And then do I dare sit down with my partner and talk to him and her about it after we've been married for 25 years or so. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, well, you didn't do that when we were first married. And it's like, yeah, well, we were 20 when we were first married. And yeah. I didn't even think about that then. And I didn't need that then. Fascinating. <clears throat> when you're 20, somebody walks by and you're aroused. That's foreplay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, yeah. Right? When you're 30 and you have kids, that changes a little bit. You know, 40s, 50s, 60s are really when we have the best sex of our lives because we're much more, uh, we're less inhibited, um, we're less hung up about things, we don't really care about the things that used to bother us, like how does my hair look or my thighs. Um, we're much more interested in connection with ourselves and the other. But if we're not bringing it to our partner, we can't expect that our partner, you know, I hear this all the time too, well, you know, he or she just doesn't turn me on anymore. And it's like, well, is that their fault or your fault? Ah, yeah. Like, who's doing is that? Is that because they're no longer a sexual being? Now, maybe they're not. Maybe they've gained 
hundred pounds and you're not into um, people that are overweight because there are a whole bunch of people who are into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that's not your thing, then you've got another difficult conversation to have with your partner, which is we now have a problem. Yeah. This is my problem, not yours. You've chosen to gain that hundred pounds. It's not arousing to me. So we're going to have to do something about this relationship. That's fascinating. How often does that type of thing happen? Not necessarily weight gain, but somebody changes so drastically in either their uh, passions or their psychology or their their physical appearance, and then it impacts the the relationship to a level that must be addressed. Um, It happens a lot, and it's surprising how many people are willing to live in sexless marriages versus um, saying, I... um, you know, this is important to me because I don't feel like a full, vital person as a result of it. Um, and so I want to be with a partner who's loving or caring or who's sexually interested in me, um, which means leaving the marriage. Now, part of what's happening today, too, is people are thinking about opening their marriages up more than they've ever thought about it before. Certainly the younger cohort, people in their you know, early 40s, 30s, 20s, um, less so people in their 50s and 60s, because by then they've got, you know, major household businesses, kids, grandkids sometimes. Um, but the problem is when it, when voice is not given to that problem, then somebody inevitably cheats or they just turn to, you know, pornography. And that can feel like cheating to the partner. So the call here, the demand for all of us to grow and change over a lifetime is to challenge ourselves when it comes to sex and sexuality and say, wow, you know, Jake, when you tell me you want to have sex in an alien costume, that really breaks me out. Today's the day they're taking over Area 51, I think, by the way. I think I think they're taking over Area 51. There's this group that went, yeah, I think that is today, as it turns out. Okay, and if I'm your partner, that may be really unusual and weird to me, but if it doesn't really take me out of my integrity... And I could say, okay, I'm curious about why that alien costume is arousing to you. I want to know more about it. And if I can manage my anxiety to get curious enough about you, and I'm willing to try it, I may actually end up liking it. And then what does it say about me that I like alien costumes during sex? Because it's typically our own judgment about the sexual act that's problematic. It's not the sexual act itself. It's our judgment of it because what does it say about me? What would my mother think if she knew I was doing this? Yeah, keep going. Tell more about that because there's a a whole rich uh, mind to be dug in that area. Well, sure. What would my church say? What would my friends say? So, you know, you can take a sexual act and ask 10 different people what they think about it, just oral sex, for example, And one person will say it's disgusting, and one person will say it's heavenly. So which is it? It's whichever you want, right? That's the right answer, I hope. It's the meaning that you ascribe to it. It's the judgment in your head about it. And And then to roll your eyes and say to your partner, well, you're disgusting because you like oral sex, is really um, a very invalidating. um, I mean, it's very judgmental, and it's very moralistic, as opposed to... It makes me squeamish, and I want to find out why it makes me squeamish. Instead, you're a pervert, so I'm not doing it. So when you're investigating the whys to the what, to the, to the reaction, it can sound like a, 
uh, an evaluation of character. If you've held a belief for a very long time and you haven't separated the belief from self, questioning that can be tantamount to questioning self. Right. So it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's always fascinating to me when people hold on to beliefs very tightly and refuse to examine them when those beliefs are uh, negatively impacting their life. Right. That's, that's pretty classic psychotherapy, honestly. But what's, what's even more fascinating is something you touched on about what would my mother think? What would my church think? What would my, you know, fill in the blank think? And it's like, well, well, what would those people be doing in your bedroom anyway? Well, here's the thing. You know, I had a colleague years ago who wrote a book called The Crowded Bed, which, you know, you don't even have to read the book to know what that's about. It's uh-huh. like, how many people are in your head while you're in bed with your partner having sex? Yeah, it's wild. Do and don't do that. And that's gross. And you can't do that. And blah, blah. You're going to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's crowded. No, it's, it's real, too. And, and those are real fears. They're, they may be irrational but they're real fears that really right. interfere with lots of things and I, and to take it out of the realm of sex for a moment we could look at uh career choice or choice of college major or uh ha- hobbies yeah. hobbies uh-huh. that you do all sorts right. of things right and we're governed suddenly not by ourselves but by the, the voices of authority that raised us and surround That's us right. that kind of thing which speaks to advertising and marketing and you know that kind of thing yeah so I think people really, I really want people to take away and consider, if you're not happy with your sex life, what is your part in it? What are you not bringing? What aren't you talking about? I hear women say sometimes, well, he's not very romantic. And I ask, well, when was the last time you were romantic? When was the last time you did the things that you love doing, whether it's, you know, any number of things, making a, a picnic and bringing champagne or... Um, and you take a bubble bath because it makes you feel sexy. Don't expect that he's going to get in the tub with you. Mm-hmm. Um, where the things that make you feel sexy arouse, bring your best to the experience instead of waiting for your partner to do it to you or for you. I think we're taught that by movies, right? Oh, yeah. yeah so yes. there's a lot of mind reading that's expected and, that, uh, right. oh, he, he just showed up with the candy. It's like, you know, kids at Christmas time will, Parents don't just magically know what their kids want. They pay attention throughout the year, and then they buy them the, the thing that they want, and then it's a surprise. And, and they get them to make lists of Santa Claus. They sure do. Now, what right. if we you know, what if we did that with our mates? Here's exactly. what I like. Here's yes. what I don't. Well, it takes, it takes the romance out. It takes the surprise out. Well, yeah, but you're getting what you want. Well, it can actually be a fun form of novelty if we each make a list of what turns us on sexually because it's too hard to talk about it. Like it feels too shameful or embarrassing. So why don't we each make a list and share our lists with each other and maybe we mail it to each other or we leave it in a card Ooh. for each other. That might be safer than mailing. Um, <laughs> so that we read it. It's like, it's like writing a love letter to each other or something that's kind of pornographic or dirty to each other that can be titillating and fun. And then each person picks something off that list that they want to do for the other. And that's when it's mutual and... Um, it's collective. It's about the coupleship, not about one person blaming someone else because they're, you know, frigid or bore or some other pejorative word. I'm, I'm furiously taking notes, by the way, for those of you who are uh, listening. listening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, who's got time for that? Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we therapists learn from each other. Um, That's true. But I want to go back to the, the pornography thing and, and children. And you said something very startling to me, which is that people will you know, know everything there is to know about sex by the age of 20 if, they're, if they dive into that rabbit hole. Um, and I was, I was ready to add a, an asterisk onto that, which is except for 
the actual experience, which includes things like um, touch and smells and sounds right. and that kind of thing. And, I, and in my experience, when I've worked with, with adolescents who are into pornography and then they struggle with their relationships or young adults who were into it and struggling presently and so forth, it's that they have an unrealistic expectation because uh, film and, and static images will never portray what real life is like, you know, including those conversations right. and that intimacy and whatnot. So help, help us understand how do you combat that once, once you've recognized the problem? And then also how do parents um, shield their children's innocence these, these days and ages? Yeah. So these are really big, big questions. Um, for starters, you know, there, there's information out there that's looking at this pornography situation and saying really the, Right now, the average youngest viewing age is eight years old of internet porn. And wow. I've met clients who started looking at it much younger um, than they saw it for the first time at five. And being a Playboy at five versus digital pornography at five or eight is very different. It is. Uh, because the level of novelty from the digitized images on the brain into the body is intense. Um, you know, when you think about the first time you saw porn, there, if you saw it really young, it was gross. It's as gross as seeing, um, you know, like a dismembered body on the side of the road mm-hmm. because you're looking up a woman's vagina. And so that can be really, really gross, disgusting, activating to a young brain because they don't have a compass for it. There's no place to put it. They have, their hormones haven't even come online yet. And so this image, watching these images over and over again, you know, we know what fires together, wires together in the brain. And so these become tenacious neural networks, and we learn through dopamine-based um, enhancements. So when something's novel, dopamine fires off, and this is highly novel material. And so people start to put together that this is what they're supposed to do. Boys think this is what girls want. Girls think this is what boys want. And so they don't know how to have sex. And we're seeing that teenagers and young people are having less sex than ever before, not more. Um, If you look at the work of Twenji and Campbell from San Diego, um, they're on the forefront of doing this type of research. And a study came out, I think, in 18, um, about this, about how much less sex young people are having. It was also reprinted in the Atlantic Monthly last January, I believe. It's an article worth looking at. Um, so, so much is happening digitally and online and masturbatorially, if that's a word. Sure, it is now. That it would be the sort of normal developmental phase of courtship that you're talking about is getting erased from many people. So, and, and what comes up a lot for young people is that they don't want to feel awkward. They want to feel cool. And so it's awkward to ask someone out. It's awkward to try to have sex with somebody. And these are all the things that are developmental tasks. And there's also a wholesomeness to the awkwardness of fumbling around for the first time and, mm-hmm. you know, feeling a body part that's not yours, whether it's a breast or a penis, like because you don't have one. Yeah. Um, and it feels simultaneously a little icky and also a little arousing. Um, that whole process is getting leapfrogged uh, by way of porn and digital sex. So, you know, there's a there's a scene in the show Billions. If anybody's a fan of that show, I happened to catch a couple of episodes, and there was one where 
a lawyer who's divorced is talking to a lawyer who's separated and challenged. And the guy's, you know, well into his maybe late 40s, early 50s, and he's dating these really young women that are in their 20s. Um, and he says to the other lawyer, he says, these young women, you know, grew up on porn, so they'll lick your dirty parts, but they don't really have what our wives, my ex-wife and your wife have. They don't compare at all because they're not with it. And so uh. that was such a sort of striking line to me, and it says so much about um, the way we are training ourselves to be sexual super early on now with porn, but it doesn't mean we know how to be relational. And I don't know what that's going to hold for us in the future. It's startling. Uh, I know that. I, there's some... By the way, I want to give proper credit because you told me how to pronounce Gene Twenge's name. I thought I always thought it was Twenge, um, but it's T W E N G E. If you if anybody okay. wants to look that up, but um, excellent work. She writes a lot of, uh, on a lot of stuff. So, um, I've I've taught uh, emotional functioning for a number of years, and there's an anthropological theory, several of them that all sp- basically speak the same thing, which says that um, humans uh, evolved as Homo sapiens. Okay. Because we have a bigger limbic area of our brain, which then connects us in community, and we survive you know, climate change and predator attacks and so forth because we hung together in community, as opposed to some of the other hominids who have larger frontal cortices, uh, and they were smarter, but they didn't, they didn't hang together in tribes, and so they, they, uh, they, didn't, they failed to evolve. So goes the theory. Uh, and it's sounding, it's sounding like the, the alarm bell should be ringing for our society broadly if we're failing to connect relationally because we've isolated ourselves uh not only sexually but uh in many other ways um i I mean i guess that's great for job security for us but it's a terrible place to live if i'm if i'm having to not i can't therapize myself out of a job and connect people anymore i don't want to live in that society are you seeing this happen more frequently more intensely younger i mean what what's the trend is there one can we tell you know i don't know because i don't want to sound like this is all you know a doomsday projection i just think it's changing we are changing rapidly and i don't know what this is going to bring um you know i think there's going to be uh some sort of backlash where people get sick of the loneliness of electronic you know dating and sex I really want to have a connection with someone else. And oftentimes when people come into treatment for sexual issues where they've been really, you know, kind of players or sexually compulsive or isolated looking at porn only, they come in because they're lonely and they want to connect with someone, but they don't know how. And they know that what they're doing is they can't stop doing what they're doing. And for a lot of people, it's about putting their electronics down. Yeah. Even in a relationship. I saw something online briefly yesterday. I didn't get to see the whole thing. But apparently a photographer has done a whole book of photographs of people with electronics in their hands. But he's erased the phone. So there was one stunning huh. photo of a couple in bed back to back. And they're looking into their phones and they're, they're holding it with their hands. But the phones are not actually in their hands, but their hands are posed a particular way. And um, I thought, wow, if we could see ourselves walking around with these phones at restaurants, down the street, in bed with each other, we would start to see how disconnected we are and how much novelty-seeking creatures we are. Because 
the computer in our hand, the phone, offers us novelty to the second, down to mm-hmm. the second we can get the latest and greatest. Um, and so how does that erode um, what we were talking about to begin with, which are these deeper conversations between couples that have been together for a long time? Because there is a taking for grantedness that sets in, um, and we don't make time for each other, but we will for a football game on the weekend, or to go be with friends, or do something with the kids, or you know, clean out a closet. Um, but really sitting down with each other is challenging. And we have a million distractions to help us out with those challenges. Is there a lack of uh, commitment or hard work or, um, I don't know, effort avoidance? Is that what's going on with the overarching instant gratification culture? You know, everything's everything's easier now and it's easier just to, to, to punch out, right? It's easier just to stay in yeah. surface level content, watch the football game rather than sit on the couch and have the conversation. I I'm just thinking out loud here because I really don't have an answer. It seems like that may be the the reason, and maybe people have just been so habit formed by again their you know the, the dopamine reinforcement that instead of maybe in yesteryear we would um, we would have that empty silence in the home and we'd be forced to talk to each other. Now we can just pick up a device because it's easier, and that leads to other easier things like cleaning the closet or thrown on the TV. We've had TVs for several generations now. That's not a big yeah. deal, but, but maybe it's happening more frequently because we've conditioned ourselves to, to bail out easier. I don't know. Sure. And look, we live in a super busy world, so it's easier for parents if their kids are preoccupied with something else uh, than to right. tend to them the way, you know, previous generations did. You know, I think stay at home moms is like a 10 to 13% now where one person works and the other person stays at home and raises kids. That's wild. Um, so it is easier. And I think human beings are, are, are more motivated to get out of pain than to move towards um, pleasurable states. Yeah, so I think that's probably I reasonable too. If my marriage is in trouble, I'll go get help because it's painful. But if my marriage is fine, I'm not going to go to a therapist to say, hey, how can I do better? What, are we, what am I missing? Hmm. And that's the second time that's come up, this conversation. So we should probably highlight that. By the way, don't necessarily need to be in weekly couples therapy forever. Maybe they go weekly, you know, for a month or two, and then they decide they're going to check in every other week or once a month. But they have uh, an anchor. They have a place to go to stay current so that resentments don't build up. And when resentments build up, sexual desire tanks. If there are young clinicians listening to this, I want you to rewind that right there and think about your treatment planning in that context. We don't need to have people languishing in service weekly in perpetuity, and definitely not just to keep our calendars full. Do not do that. But out of honoring the person's own progress, we really need to be moving them forward and encouraging them that maintenance can be every couple of months. Uh, and, it's, and we need to encourage people to come in when things are going well. Right. So they can also hear themselves talk about how well they're doing. The therapist can highlight things like, oh, my gosh, you guys are juggling a lot. Oh, yeah. It's amazing um, and impressive how you keep your emotional connection going. And a sexual connection is a positive emotional connection because when you two are in harmony, that means your children are in harmony. That means work is more in harmony. Um, the whole system is healthier when the parents are connected and being connected is part of it is being sexual with each other. 
I need to start recording this on video because uh, you, if you, if we had this on video, you could see me high fiving myself over the night, like clapping and like fist pumping. Uh, as go, as the parents go, so goes the household. You're the Correct. executives of your home. If you're happy and harmonious and you love each other and you demonstrate that openly and you're consistent and um, your children see that, they will also be that way. So we, uh, I've said it repeatedly. We don't do fix my kid. Um, we involve the parents. But oftentimes, I think we have to you know, almost say, hey, we're, we're, we'll get to your kid in a minute. But the next few sessions, we really need to work on you guys. That's right. Right. Because your child's a reflection of what's going on in the system. Um, most likely that's what's going on. And that's not to be parent blaming. Not at all. It's just that, you know, children reflect what's going on in their environment. They're sponges. Yeah, well, and the, and the parents are the authority figures. So who else are they going to listen to? And if parents are absent, then you really need to answer that question. Who else are they oh, listening to? Oh, then they're listening to the internet and their peers. Uh-huh. Yeah. So and do you, we, know, we know where that goes. Do you work with children? I don't. Um, my career has really been built on working with adults. Uh, so I'm not an expert in children. Um, I am very interested in, you know, early, early attachment processes um, and development neuroscience, but only in so much as how the brain and body get set up early on and how that can put someone on the trajectory for major mental illness and addiction. You have a book about that, don't you? Uh-huh. Exclusively? Well, a chapter in a book. Oh, okay. Maybe that's it. Uh Talk a little bit more about that, because that's fascinating to me, please. Well, um, what we know from developmental neuroscience is that, you know, the infant brain and body are setting up in the third trimester of pregnancy. And so the mother or the surrogate or the person carrying the infant is directly in communication with that infant through a neurochemical subjectivity, meaning if the mother is upset or anxious or traumatized, she's body is going to release a whole host of stress chemicals, and those chemicals are going to go through the placenta, and they will be encoding the infant's brain and body also. Um, we certainly know that women that use drugs give birth to babies that are addicted to drugs. Um, and so it doesn't have to be an outside source. It can be high levels of adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones that are impacting that nervous system also. And then once the infant is born... Um, many, many uh, people talk about the first, you know, several months as an out-of-body pregnancy because the infant is still so nascent and it's absolutely dependent on experience um, of the major caregivers and its environment in order for its brain and body to grow appropriately. So if you have a child that is neglected, as was the case of the Romanian orphans in the 90s, um, when they were just left in cribs and not tended to at all, you get blighted brains. They don't develop appropriately. Uh, But when you have a parent that's contingently responding, making eye contact, their tone of voice, their facial expressions, gesture, touch... All of that is growing the right brain specifically um, and the nervous system. And the child is having the experience of being soothed when upset um, appropriately. So if the baby cries because it's hungry or its diaper's wet, um, the parent responds in an appropriate amount of time and, you know, it soothes that source of upset so that the nervous system is, you know, responding because there's a source of aggravation or danger, 
and it's being responded to by soothing it down. So it builds capacity for the vicissitudes of life, mm-hmm. um, for hurt, upset, but it can handle it over time because there's a parent there that's been regulating it over time um, until you've got a securely attached child. Uh, but when there's any kind of upset to that that's chronic, whether it's you know anxiety, depression, um, anger in the household, alcoholism, mental illness, as I mentioned before, that child's brain and body is not going to set up optimally, and then you're going to have problems sometimes over a lifetime. Can it be corrected later on down the road? Some of it can, and some of it can't. It just depends on how extreme it is. We've heard um, oh, good. certain structures in the brain um, that if they are blighted or they don't grow, they're not going to grow back. Certain axons. Um, we have dendritic growth, we know, for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. We have something called neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and also autonomic plasticity. The body can also tolerate more, too. So we can learn these things and we can grow some capacities, but we may never be 100% optimally if there were uh, gross or egregious. When you were talking about the in utero exposure to high levels of stress hormones, I was thinking of uh, couples in domestic violence relationships. And we we do a lot of that through our agency. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a partnership with one of our local uh, agencies here that does sexual and domestic violence advocacy and shelter and whatnot. And I'm, I'm thinking about people in pregnancy and then I'm thinking about those little babies. And then I'm thinking about what if you were one of those little babies who was exposed to that many, many years ago, but now you're a fully functioning adult and I'll put an asterisk on fully functioning because we're not really sure. And you're listening to this podcast and you go, well, I grew up in that environment. Am I doomed? And I'm hearing about neuroplasticity. I'm hearing about dendritic growth, but can you, can you get a little more specific maybe with, with people who may be listening to this or maybe clinicians who work with the, that, that population, that demographic, what can we do specifically to help grow that resiliency, that uh, distress tolerance, maybe rewire those pathways? Well, I think that happens in long-term relational psychotherapy. Um, and that's what the data show also. It's the close in week in and week out um, experience with another person who is regulating, who really sees you hears you, who challenges you um, when your relational patterns are distorted, um, especially if you get angry or you're dismissive of the therapist, that the therapist really gets into a relationship with the client, not in an old-fashioned symbolic way, Mm -hmm. but in a real relational way where you're impacting me and I'm impacting you, and we talk about it uh, quite explicitly and the therapist knows how to regulate that client appropriately. And so it's about building a long-term relationship because when that happens, there is a subcortical right brain to right brain read that's going on, brainstem to brainstem, um, where the client who grew up with abuse is now in the presence of a safe other. And so previous circuits maybe that were down, Um, or previous areas that didn't develop as well as they could have start to come online in the face of that safety. Uh, But the therapy has to be safe, but not too safe. There have to be enough challenges at the person's capacities um, to help them shift and grow. 
So you might not always like your therapist. You might be angry at him or her, but can you work it through with them? Um, can you come to a resolution where you both feel good about it? And not only good about it, but closer afterwards, that starts to change things profoundly. But, you know, it doesn't take as long as it took. Like if you grew up in an abusive household for 18 years, it probably won't take 18 years for you to get better, but it may take, you know, eight years. I love that you just said that because I say that frequently. And the analogy I use is that if you wandered off the path, you're trying to get to a lake and you, mm-hmm. you ended up in a forest and you're 20 miles off the path into the forest with a map and a compass uh, or these days a GPS locator. Uh, right. you, can, you can you can find out how to get out of the forest and you, you, know, you, get, you gotta walk four miles because you're still in the middle of the forest, but you don't have to walk 20. And, right. and, I, That's and right. I, and I love, I love, love, love that when people who have greater experience in this field and more letters after their names say stuff that I say, it validates, <laughs> it validates what I'm doing. Well, some of it's common sense also. Yeah, yeah. It really, therapy really does accelerate the healing process. And I it really does, love yeah. that you said that. And, and it accelerates when people are in groups. Uh, when people are in, mm-hmm. you know, addiction treatment groups or domestic violence groups, uh, because there's, a, there's something really powerful about, there's a contagion that takes place uh, when you start to feel like, I'm not alone, or right. I'm not a freak, or, yeah, it makes, it makes sense that I do this, because look at what I grew up in, it's what I learned, it's not bad sense, Yeah, um, it's good sense, and... You know, I'm able to talk about this, and people hear me, and they respond. Nobody's going to hit me or yell at me. Um, and so that accelerates people's healing also. Um, in fact, there was a study done that showed that 12-step groups change people's attachment strategies over time. Um, and that's not surprising, but because there are people there that care, that say, give me your phone number, call me, let's go to lunch or breakfast, let's get together and talk about your step work, that changes people's ability to connect with other people. Yeah, it's, you're being exposed to something that maybe was just mythological up to that point. And then when it actually happens, and there is no, like you said, you don't get whacked for it, right. it starts to build the capacity to do it again and, and more and more. And then eventually you find yourself uh, connecting with, with people instead of isolating it. That's, that's healing. That's really awesome. You know what? We're we're coming up on an hour here. Um, mm-hmm. I have so much more that I want to ask and talk to you about. I'm really glad we connected. Um, I want to stay in touch. I know we're both super busy, and maybe yeah, we can schedule again. this again. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, if you, for the listening audience, uh, you can find Alex online all over the place. Like I said, but she's got some really good articles at PsychCentral.com too. Y'all, you just search her name, and and several will pop up. You can go to the um, the, the center that she founded, centerforhealthysex.com. Uh, look her up on Amazon. She's there. And um, then she's got her own website, alexkatahakis.com. And it's uh, you know it's spelled the way it's spelled on the uh, link that you just clicked on to download this podcast. But it's uh, K-A-T-E-H-A-K-I-S. We also have a YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, Center for Healthy Sex, and type that in, nice. um, you'll find lots and lots of videos on um, sex and sexuality and my own podcast. So um, that's a great resource for people when they have questions about specific areas of sex and sexuality. That's super cool. And you did a, a podcast with Dax Shepard. Um, it's called, uh, what is it, Armchair Expert? Expert, correct. Armchair Expert. I. I'm a big fan. Um, that, that's super cool. Um, so you're you're uh, you're coming up in the world, and now you've been on the venerable Noggin Notes. Um, I don't know if it gets. I don't know if you can top this. 
conversation. Jake, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks. Uh, back at you. And um, for everybody who's listening, thanks for listening. On behalf of the Naganotes team, the Zephyr Wellness family, and on behalf of our guest, Dr. Alex Katahakis, thank you very much. And we wish you great mental wellness. Take care.